Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse 1, going down through verse 18, we'll focus probably on the first two-thirds of that this morning. Let's, uh, let's just relax and soak in and hear the voice of God right now. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for your own interests, but also for the interest of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on the earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to do His will and His good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. Our gracious Father, how thankful we are for showing us, demonstrating to us, putting an example before our lives and our minds and our entire being of what it looks like to be a new kind of human as we look to Jesus, who is the perfect man, learning obedience through that which he suffered, and yet was faithful in all that he was called to, obedient in every point, even to the death of the cross, because that was your will for his life having been satisfied with that which He died and for the reason He died, having, having saved us and atoned for our sins, You gladly and joyfully raised Him up on the third day and affirmed Him and crowned Him with glory and honor. And we this day bow our knee to King Jesus and call Him 
King of kings and Lord of lords. We now ask that as you have done many years ago, Father and Son, you would send your Spirit forth upon your people in power and through the preaching of the Word now. And take command of our minds, but also of our hearts, that you would transform us with the gospel and the power of this glory that is shown before our very eyes through the suffering and the death of Jesus and through his victorious glorification. May we follow in his train. And we pray that the Spirit would apply the message so pointedly to us individually and so pointedly to us as a congregation that we would experience the blessedness and the joy of that longing that we have that will be fulfilled in the new heavens and new earth. But may we have a taste of it, a taste of it today. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I'm going to quote from a book that I was reading this past year. Book of the name of the book is Biblical EQ, Emotional IQ, if you will. And the context is an emotional transformation, but it applies in a much broader way, so I thought it was appropriate in this setting. The author says, let us pause for a moment and think about how communities have been a part, have been a part of shaping our lives and our beliefs. Our family formed our first beliefs, our school and our social context formed many other beliefs, and the church community then added yet more. On top of this, networks and those things that you have belonged to as groups and friends that you have talked to have also probably shaped you. Being involved in community shaped an enormous amount of what we believe. Communities have formed both our formal and informal beliefs, our doctrines, our prejudices, our hopes, and our paranoias. If beliefs are critical to our emotional health and beliefs are formed in community, then fairly logically, having the right kind of community will be a big help in the emotional transformation. A dysfunctional family is an emotionally destructive community that places wrong beliefs and perceptions in people. The early church was a highly functional community that was emotionally transformational, full of joy and peacemaking, gospel-proclaiming, and miracle-working place to be. It certainly made sure the right beliefs, perceptions, and practices were instilled in people. Thus, the transforming power of an authentic, loving, spirit-filled Christian community that is rightly grounded in Scripture cannot be underestimated. We learn, change, and grow best in an adventurous, faith-filled Christian community. In the same book, addressing people beset with the sin of folly, the author says, quote, "...foolish Christians need first to realize they have been foolish." Once the light dawns that they need, once that light dawns, they need to be encouraged to seek wisdom from God. Finally, they need to learn the basic disciplines that will enable them to correct their folly in the light of their new wisdom. This process takes place best in Christian community where accountability and discipleship are lovingly practiced without harshness or legalism. 
Again, the author says, quote, Jesus and his disciples formed a learning organization, a community filled with disciplined learners in which beliefs were transformed and spiritual greatness produced. It is almost impossible to be deeply transformed outside of community. This past weekend, we have looked at becoming a transformational church. A church where our personal lives are transformed into the virtues of the new heavens and new earth, of which we get a glimpse of and we can see. And a transformational church that will change the culture and society around us. I have largely spoken to you as individuals about your personal growth and where you need to be spending your time and your energy and your focus in developing Christian virtue in your life, your character, which is consistent with your Christian vocation as priests and kings. This morning I want to address the fact that all of this will not happen apart from your church community. In addition, we collectively, we corporately need to be pursuing the same goals, the same thing, the same virtues for all of this to be successful. In other words, our church corporately must be laboring diligently toward Christian virtue. And this is exactly what God's plan is for the church It is the church glorified that adorns the beauties of these virtues, and therefore, this is the work and the labor and the energy we need to be about today as God's royal priesthood. We see where it's going, and then we live in the present by faith where we're going, growing from glory to glory into that likeness. And when we do that, the world around us will be transformed as we are transformed. You as an individual need to be transformed into these virtues. This church then needs to be transformed into those virtues, which will then transform society into those virtues. It's an inside-out growth. And Paul's joy, a minister's joy, my joy which is also Christ's joy, was for the church to be vibrant and healthy of one mind, like-minded in humility, striving together in one spirit in the gospel. And so this morning I'd like to look at this passage and consider these things. A healthy church, as the Apostle Paul says in verse 2, is a church that is like-minded. It's like-minded. It has the same worldview. It sets its mind on the same things. So you're going to have to set your mind on the same things all collectively, and we're not left simply to know or for an arbitrary thought of what those things are. He's going to spell that out for us. We all must be on the same page here. We've got to have the same mindset. We have to have the same worldview And each of the member needs to walk in unity with that worldview. And that worldview is expressed in two ways. First of all, in the second part of verse 2, it says, having the same love. 
And there's many Christian virtues, but this is the chief of all the virtues. And now abide faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. It becomes the first of the fruit of the Spirit list. Love, joy, peace. It's the love that they have in Christ. It's the love that the Apostle Paul says in chapter 1, verse 9 of this same epistle, that may abound more and more in them. The second thing, in terms of being of the same world that's being expressed, not only is it to be of the same love, but to also be of one accord, united in spirit. Thinking in one mind. Having the same love and thinking now of one mind. This is what he says in chapter 1, verse 27. It's the conduct that was worthy of the gospel when he says, stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Most problems in families and churches come from an individual or individuals not being united in spirit with the rest of the body. And you're responsible. Individually responsible for the corporate unity in one spirit and one love. Families struggle with disunity. Husbands and wives and parents with children and siblings together because they are not united in spirit in the same love. That is the root of disunity. That's what Satan loves to stir up. And that's also true for churches as well. Three characteristics of this mindset, which is then set forth in three main verbs, have all to do with a renewed mind. And the verb is an action word. It requires us to constantly be thinking differently. So the three ways to be like-minded, here Paul tells them how to live this out. What does it mean to be like-minded in the same love? So he says in verse 3, the first thing is this, in humility, considering others more valuable than yourself. Immediately right now, I am into the realm of new humanity. Learning how to be a new kind of human. First, in humility, considering others more valuable than yourself. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. The negatives here in this verse point to the problems of the old humanity, the old way, the natural way that lives, which is not the way we are then to pursue virtue, which doesn't seem natural to us, but then by exercising godly habits, we then little by little change, so this becomes second nature to us. And then we receive the blessings, and we know this, but 
This is going to take understanding. But the, the negatives point to the problem. First of all, we see the negative of selfish ambition. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition. Selfish ambition is the heart of human fallenness where the self is the governor of values and behavior. People of selfish ambition stand over against others, their instigators, their antagonists. Selfish ambition wants to make themselves look bigger. They want to do what they want to do, and they're going to do what they want to do. They're the individualists, see. But that's not the place in the body of Christ, unified in one spirit of one mind. There's not a place for the individualists. Oh, there's places for individuals with various gifts of different personalities, backgrounds, but not the individualist, not the existentialist in that sense. Well, another negative here that points to the problem is given there, let nothing be done in selfish ambition or conceit. And conceit is the second problem. It's empty glory. It's, think, it's those people who think too highly of themselves whose glory is altogether baseless. Their minds are focused on them. They think in a worldview about them. It's their little universe. Yeah? Me-verse. I'm going to tell you, I'm, I'm guilty of being selfish and conceited. There are times when there's problems in my home and it's because of my little me-verse. I'm an instigator, and I'm actually thinking of myself more highly, whose glory altogether is baseless, because I lack humility. And when I stand back away from the problems and the contentions that I see in my own home, my own life, I have to recognize these are characteristics are true of me, and they're probably true of you. But that's the old way to live, and that's the old man that we have to put off so that we are being renewed in the image of Christ, renewed in righteousness and holiness and knowledge. Knowledge. Let this mind be in you, which was in Christ, the perfect, the perfect human, the perfect image of God. Not with selfish ambition, not with empty vainglory or conceit. These two negatives are the natural old human self. But the positive then provides the answer. It's a new way to be human. It's this new humanity out of the fallenness and the image of God that has been skewed on our faculties, maligned in our own depravity and rebellion who suppress the truth and who then believes lies, and now all of a sudden, renewed in Christ, this image is showing us Christ Himself, how to be a new human, how to be the perfect, how to be the humanity that God intended us to be in the beginning, that we so horribly messed up. And the positive answer then shows us this. Here's the mindset of Christ. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ. Now, here it is. Considering one another in humility. 
humility. This is lowliness of mind. True humility is the manner of God. It's not a rule, per se. It's a virtue. You can't just go obey, be humble. That's something you have to value to something you have to be. And then it's, he shows us what else this mindset is like. It's esteeming others better than ourselves, considering something more valuable than yourself. What do you consider more valuable than yourself? Your neighbor, God, and your neighbor. And by the way, if you do that, you have the virtue of which is the summation that summarizes the entire law of God. Caring for your neighbor and putting other people's needs before your very own. And I'm telling you, the health of our church and the health of this body is dependent on this very factor in humility, esteeming others better than yourself. We have to have this kind of worldview. We have to have this kind of mindset, which requires us, yes, to deny ourselves, pick up our cross, and follow Jesus. Now, how do we consider others to surpass ourselves? How do we consider other people more valuable than ourselves? Well, verse 4 is going to explain it. So, the first way to think about being like-minded one with another is in humility considering others more valuable than yourself. But the second way is do not be concerned for yourself or preoccupied with your own things. That's what verse 4 says. Let each of you not look out for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. So the second way to have this unity, this, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ, is do not be overly occupied with your own things. Do not be concerned. That is keeping attention, looking out for yourself above all things. The idea of how best can I help myself? How can I best help myself? What's good for me? Don't be concerned with helping yourself as much as you are concerned with helping others. That's the mind of Christ. That's the worldview. That's the way to live in this new way of man. Well, the third way of being mindful and the like-mindedness and with one another is having the mind of Christ is be thinking in the same spirit as Jesus. Verse 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And this is the same spirit now that comes out, not just a mindset, but an entire spirit that shows the virtue of the life. And so it says, let this mind be in you. Jesus was not thinking about how he could increase his own fortune or his own glory, but how he could provide life and glory to others. His spirit was one of 
divesting himself and investing in others. And this is the way to a transformed life and community. It really is summed up in deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow Jesus. It's going to involve suffering, yes. And it's going to involve death to yourself. But that's exactly what your baptism is about. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. And if you are dead with Him, buried with Him in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life, now therefore you have a different life. Behold, all things are passed away, and behold, all things have now for you become new. You're out of the slave market in Egypt, having passed through the baptism of the Red Sea, and you are into the pilgrimage toward the promised land with Christ tabernacling among us, see. But it is that suffering and death, that is the way to glory. That is the way to the new heavens and new earth. Now there are three things that then demonstrate this mindset of Christ, this spirit that are given for us here, the first of which is given to us in verse 6. Who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. It's a difficult translation here, but it basically is saying this. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or held on to. This is really important for our mindset, for our worldview, how you are to think about how to live your new humanity created in Christ Jesus, renewed in the image of God. Jesus, first of all, did not consider equality with God something to be held on to. Who being in the form of God, who had it at His disposal, did not consider this something to continue to hold in His grasp. It gets down to this. He did not assert Himself or His personal rights as God. Now, Jesus never ceased becoming God. He was always fully God. But as God, He was Creator. And by the very virtue, the fact He was Creator, He was sovereign over everything. He controls everything. He is already Lord over everything. He didn't give any of that up. But He did give up all of the glory and the honor and the majesty which was His right as God. And He didn't feel like He had to grasp that and keep holding on to it. He didn't feel like He had to assert His right as God in receiving all of the glory and the honor which was rightfully due His name. He did not feel the emotional need to hang on to that which was dear to Him for Himself. Even though that was His right. 
There's a mindset, a way of thinking here that God wants you and me to have. Our culture teaches us exactly this opposite way of thinking. And Christ gave up His personal rights in love for His people for a cause He deemed greater than clinging to His personal right of glory. Let that mind be in you which was in Jesus our Lord. Deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow Him. But, verse 7 then gives us a contrast. But He made Himself of no reputation. Again, a difficult translation here. This is the typical, uh, or the the famous um, kenosis passage. The word kenosis means He emptied Himself. And there's been a lot of debate over the centuries about what did He empty Himself of? And that whatever it is he emptied himself of reveals the mindset that you and I need to be about. For he truly cannot have emptied himself out of all his divine attributes because attributes are simply characteristics and descriptions of his divinity. He is always God, always has been God, always will be God, and nothing less than fully God. He did not give up divine attributes. And there is a mystery in the hypostatic union of Christ and His two natures being fully man and fully God. A mystery that we cannot explain. He did not give up His exercise of those divine attributes. Again, this a little bit of a semantic uh, gymnastics to have to think through that because it doesn't make sense when you get down to really what an attribute is. What did he empty himself out of? The kenosis. He emptied himself out of glory and poured himself out into humanity, which was lower than the angels that he created. And he humbled himself to the lowest place that he could have been. Not just humanity, but to the lowest place of a bondservant, a slave. Let this mind also be in you. He poured Himself out of His glory into humanity. And there we have three participles then that define, that describes the verb, which was the main action, in the manner in which He then empties Himself. Number one, taking hold of the form of a servant. You know, that is in contrast in verse 6 with grasping on to the glory of God, which was his right. And now he is taking hold of the form of a servant. You and I do not naturally think this way. This is what got Peter in trouble When Jesus says, you are not mindful of God, but you are thinking as a man, an old man, an old natural man in your flesh and not thinking the way God thinks. Get behind me, Satan. God took on earthly quality of what it meant to be not only full flesh and blood and the humanity and so 
tempted in all points like we are and felt the infirmities of this flesh, but he went right down to the level of a bond slave. He went right down into the pit of Egypt. The exact opposite end of the spectrum is what he grasped. The mind of God is not acquisitional. It's not something greedy. It's not grabbing. It's not something that holds on to things for its sake. It's not a worldview of grasping on to oneself, but in fact it is giving of oneself for the sake of others. It's like leaving and grasping. There's a Two other participles coupled together, which then also explains a manner in which he emptied himself. He became in the likeness of man and was found in the form and the nature as man. In Christ, we see true humanity made in the perfect image of God. We see as we are made in the image of God that we are to have this kind of mindset, being renewed in this kind of knowledge. It's one of serving others. Taking on the role of a servant. The greatest leader will be a servant. The first shall be last. It's not a dominioning or lording over, but a divesting of yourself of all of that self, and investing into the lives of others. Well, the third way that the Scripture reveals that he has this mindset is that he humbled himself. Verse 8, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And we've already rehearsed many times over the course of this week and how he He learned obedience through the things which he suffered to become perfect. But he humbled himself, becoming obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, that which he did not deserve. Perfectly sinless, did not deserve this. This is the mystery of godliness, people. He took your sin and my sin. When He came down from glory, we should have been on our faces bowing and praising God and the Son of David. The Messiah has come. And yet we instead were saying, crucify Him, crucify Him. And it's for those very heinous sins and enmity against God Himself that He bore all of those things alone upon the cross of Calvary. And He died for all of those heinous things that you said against Him, you did against Him, and you fought Him. It wasn't anything He did for which He died. It was everything you did for which He died. And he went to the cross and he bore that alone. Bore the wrath of his Father to atone for your sins. And so he could give you his royal, perfect righteousness. And now you are accepted in the Beloved. 
the beloved Son of God. It is the most selfless, sacrificial act of love that could ever have been demonstrated to us and you will never be able to comprehend the width and the bright, the breadth, the height. You cannot comprehend how much love this was for you. And now he says, I want you to know a little bit of it more and more as you grow in a renewing of your mind so that you too can be like this. You can have this mind the Spirit. That's how the mind of God works. It's incomprehensible to us. That's why when we look and we read through the Beatitudes and we're looking at we're supposed to love our enemies and we're supposed to bless those who curse us, that is impossible. And Jesus said, yeah, with man, it is. I'm not calling you to do anything possible in that old fallen filthy rotten flesh of yours it's not what i came here to ask you to do i'm actually making you a new humanity renewed after my likeness now let me show you i'm going to show you the absolutely epitome perfect picture of the archetypical man here i go right through the cross and for the joy set down before him he endured the shameful death of the cross shameful and humility for you you'll never Rise up to that level of perfectness, perfectness in yourself. You'll never, even by the grace of God in this life, ever get to that. But that is who you are in Christ. That which you will become in the resurrection, in the new heavens and the new earth, you are already that in Christ today. That is an amen. Truly. And this amount of love and this mindset is now, he's saying, now I have done this. I've created you new. I've given you a new heart. I've given you the spirit. I have now made you this new. Now this is how you are to live. You've lived this way. You're going to know the joy of it. You'll know the glory of it. And you'll know the Father's honor of this. This is the mind of God. This is what Paul is talking about in Romans 12 as you give your life a living sacrifice and not be conformed to this world or the old way of thinking or just the natural way that comes out of our brains. No, you are to be transformed by the renewing of your mind and this is the kind of mind that you are to have being renewed. Let me make some points off of this. Unity can only come about from humility and love with the mindset of Christ. We are to be servants of one another as one member of the body builds up another. The transformation must be going on in our minds. The way we think about ourselves and the way we think about others. The way we think about our property. The way we think about the property of others. The way we think about our trials or the way we think about the trials of others. Well, this was a bad trial. Guess what? Esteem somebody else's trial better than you esteem your own. Don't have this little competition going of who has the greatest woe. 
We must be undergoing a transformation of our attitudes, of the spirit, of the mindset of life, which is after God, which He has shown us in Christ. God's character is so selfless, yet of anyone, He has the right not to be. How vain and ugly we must look in the light of God when we think of ourselves more highly or we begin to glory in ourselves or of our achievements or who we are or what we have done or how smart we are or anything else. And yet when we quarrel with one another because of our own selfishness or our wants or our needs or our stuff or our time or our energy or our life or our emotional needs or our rights... How hurtful that would be after what He has done for you and me. We need to seek the best for others at our expense. It's going to require a lot of suffering. But that's the way to glory. Seeking to help others more than yourself. Seeking to serve others more than to be served. Seeking to be last and not first. That's the way of our Savior and the way He taught us to live this new life. Now after humility comes glory. And after He went through this, God honored Him. And after He came through and was was faithful in this, God highly exalted him and has given him a name above every name. He was the lowest of all names, and now he is above all names. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, and those in heaven, and those on earth, and those under the every knee, no exception, will bow willingly and voluntarily or by compulsion. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Yes, even His greatest enemies. Jesus is Lord. We shout it from the mountaintops and we sing it with joy. Jesus is Lord! Others who cannot say that willingly will say it under admission of the truth that they know. God has promised the same thing for you. He has promised if you follow in that train through your death to yourself and suffering, you will get to glory. You will be raised again. God will vindicate you from all of your enemies. God will honor you. He's already seated you together in the high places with Jesus Christ in the heavenlies itself. What you will become in your resurrection glory is what you already are today in Christ. And that's a great joy. And God will continue to honor you in such a way that your mind and your imagination cannot even come up with how glorious that glory will be. But the day right now is suffering in the cross. The joy is set on the other side of the cross. So don't seek the glory for yourself. Let that be the fruit of a selfless invested life that then God brings to you. 
And then we have the application in verse 12. That's what the word therefore is for. When you see the word therefore, we should ask, what is it therefore? And therefore is a conclusion of what he has just been saying previous to that. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. There's the application. Work it out. Work out your salvation. This is not adding merit to the merit of Christ. This is not adding your human works in a meritorious fashion to what Christ has already done in complete fullness. But it's like gardening as a gardener. There will be no harvest unless the gardener gets out to plant the seed and to weed and to water. And as he applies himself in the work that defines him as the gardener, then harvest can truly be accepted by the grace of God. Expected by the grace of God. If you're a musician, that's who you are. That's what defines your work and what you produce. And like a musician who is defined by the work he produces, he must apply himself in the work of making music. That's the idea. So as a virtual, virtuous, virtuous royal priest, we are to work in and labor for the very work that defines us as followers of Christ, as a royal priesthood, holy and separate, a peculiar people. We have a responsibility to work out the very salvation that God has worked in us. And all of this working out is rooted in and founded in and, and blossomed and, and brought forth the fruit in the work of God in us. And that's what he says in verse 13. For, he explains, for it is God who works in you to do what His will and His good pleasure. It's God that's doing this. He's taken you out of the world of darkness, put you in a light. And he says, now, your light be light. He's taken you out of the old humanity. He's made you a new kind of man. And now He is making you a holy, virtuous, royal priest. Now be a holy, royal priest. Work this out. It is God that's working in you. And that is the same thing when He says that He has begun this work, will continue it and complete it until the day of redemption. Now, how we act with our will is based on what we believe to be true in our minds. How we act out with our will is based upon what we believe in our minds. For, he explains, what has previously been stated about let this mind be in you that was also in Christ, this transformed mind of which Paul talks about in chapter 12 of Romans, we see now it's going to be worked out in your lives and you're responsible to bring out those things that God has already made you to be. Because it is God that is working in you and through you to do of His good will and His good pleasure. Let me give you some applications to conclude our weekend and this message. Christian behavior is a like a team sport. Like soccer or football, there are, there's no room on this team 
for passengers, spectators on the team bus. There's no room on this team for passengers, that is, players who allow the others to do the hard work and coast along, hoping that all will be well. Equally, there's also no room for the lone individual who supposes that he can play all the positions on the team simultaneously by himself. And that's why these virtues that we've been studying over the past weekend are developed in the context of community because they are the virtues of community. Mutual kindness, truth-telling, forgiveness, acceptance, faith, hope, love. Love. These virtues do not happen automatically. These virtues do not happen automatically. As God has empowered, God has changed you. But He wants you to work it out by the grace of God and the grace alone. But He wants you to be responsible and get to work. Community is vital. But all the members must make it their own and contribute as a team player and not a stowaway spectator on the team bus. Just because you've been converted doesn't mean that worship and prayer and kindness and humility and gentleness and love just happens automatically. You wake up and boom, there it is. The seed is there. The power is there. The grace is there. The will is is there. The mind and desire is there. But each individual must then make choices to put these things they genuinely anticipate into the present life where we are promised that future which is the life we have already begun in Christ. And that's what a royal priesthood looks like. This is what a community that together learns the lessons of holiness, that learns as well as what it means to reflect the character of God into this world. The character of this mind that was in Christ out into the world. See? And the challenge... To strive for the corporate virtues is, after all, precisely what we should expect if the individual virtue, the first fruits here, being love. This thought of Christians trying to practice love while remaining in their own little hermetically sealed world of private spirituality and virtue is a contradiction in terms. You will learn love in the crucible of experience. You will learn it through trial. You will learn it through testing. You will learn it 
through suffering. And you will learn obedience, just like Jesus, through the things which you suffer. But you learn, and you grow, because you are a learner. You are a disciple. The nature of the kingdom is one that works first inwardly with Christ, and then works outwardly in the work of the Spirit. And the way to victory in the world conquest is through faith and Working in love. Faith working in love. See? It's the way of suffering and the way of the cross. Now get this, the way of Christ's kingdom is bringing together in one mind and one spirit, united together in one cause, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all. Alexander the Great, one of the kings and one of the kingdoms that Daniel prophesied would come up. Alexander the Great saw himself as the true world leader because he had brought together Greeks and barbarians into a single empire. After that, the Roman emperors following Augustus sought themselves, saw themselves as the true rulers of the world because they united in the one empire people from many different nations. But Jesus the true ruler of the world drawing together two archetypical divisions of all humanity between Jew and Gentile brings together those into one new temple. And he did so around the world, across the nations, and across the ages. And the people volunteered in the day of his power. They were not compelled with force or coerced with rules. That is the kingdom of God. And it is in you. The more we grow in our virtue and particularly Christ's love, the way that the Bible defines love, the way the Bible looks at love, the way the Bible has shown us love, and the way Jesus has given us the example, the more impact and transformation we will have on the society around us and on the world, not only in this age, but the ages to come. I conclude with a particular illustration In his book on the early church, Rodney Stark, his book called The Rise of Christianity is the description of how Christians in ancient Turkey would react when their town was struck with a plague. The rich, the well-to-do, and particularly the doctors would gather up family and possessions and leave town. They would flee into the hills to fresher and less polluted air or to friends or family in towns some distances away. But the Christians, often among the poorest and many of them slaves, would stay and nurse people, including those who were neither Christians nor of their own family members, nor any other way obviously connected to them. Sometimes such people got well again. Not all diseases were necessarily fatal. 
But sometimes Christians themselves would catch the disease and die from it. But the point was made graphically and unmistakably. This was a different way of being human. Nobody at that time had ever thought about living that way before. Why were they doing it? And the Christians called upon to explain the habits of the heart which were made second nature to them. To do such things, they would talk about Jesus. And they would talk about God and what they discovered in Jesus. And God's own very nature was a self-giving love. And they would explain it. Stark suggests that this kind of behavior was one of the contributory reasons for the rapid spread of Christianity despite the best efforts of the Roman persecutors. Leading up to the time when by the start of the 4th century, nearly half of the empire was Christian and the emperors decided that it was better to join the winning side. That's how you change society. It might take a little time, but love will always triumph. Good will always defeat evil. That's the story of Jesus. You get the victory through the suffering. And our way of glory is through the cross. May Christ and His cross be our banner for the salvation of the world. Our gracious Father, we thank You for this weekend and for the messages that You have revealed to us out of Your Word and for this tremendous example that is laid before our eyes in Philippians 2 of what our great God has done for us in Christ Jesus. We pray that the Spirit would move in our spirits to bring us more into conformity to this kind of mind and this Spirit that we would be like-minded of one Spirit and let our love for each other would be abounding yet more and more. We pray, Father, that you would work it out in us individually, work it out in us corporately, and may that have an effect upon this community, the state of Tennessee, the United States of America, and this entire world for years to come. Lord, may you alone be glorified in what you're doing here today. In Jesus' name, amen.